My name is Peter Murphy Lewis, and welcome to the LTC Heroes podcast. Join me on this journey as we deep dive into how long-term care leaders like you are overcoming obstacles with unparalleled solutions. I hope these curious conversations contribute to the care of your residents. This podcast was truly a joy for me talking with Barb Click about her vast experience coming from acute, even working with animals at a veterinarian clinic, uh, moving over to long-term care for this interesting, innovative Jewish community in Minnesota was really fascinating for me. I loved how she talked about the fragmentation of care, but talked about how long-term care is collaborative. Uh, as opposed to competitive. I enjoy the way that she talks about how she coaches her team and walks the floors and the way that she works with KPIs around transparency and staffing and employment and what she did with being transparent about COVID positive case and those that have passed. Barbara's approach to what she calls the capstone is enlightening, great, great, philosophy. You'll hear the optimism in her tone. You'll hear my giggles and amusement with all that she brings to the industry. I hope you love this episode as much as I enjoyed this conversation. Welcome back to LTC Heroes. With me today is Mrs. Barb Click. Barb Click is the CEO at Shalom Community Alliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She has 30 plus years on the acute side of care and recently moved over to long-term care where she's joined the leadership team at Shalom. With her wealth of experience, Barb has been able to form her own ideas about how care should be handled and where we are going to explore that. Her switch from acute to long-term care and adaptive leaders in the healthcare industry. Barb, welcome to the program. Thank you, Peter. Barb, I warned you that I like to start off with three to the point questions to get our listeners excited. The first one being what actionable or valuable advice do you think that we will cover today about long-term care industry? Well, if if a lot of our audience is from acute care, I'm going to provide a window into post-acute care or perhaps even a bridge for some of you. Fantastic. What is one lesser known book, resource, newsletter that you would recommend I look into to better understand long-term care? A leading Age is an association. It has a national level and state chapters. And I would start with Leading Age National website. Lots of tools, lots of good information. Thank you. And name one mentor or somebody in your life who's inspired you, has had an impact on the way that you approach care. Gail Kavenvold, and she is the president of the Leading Age Minnesota chapter, and she's been in this business about 50 years, and she is fabulous. She's a a smart, bright woman, started out as a social worker, and she is just the collaborator, and uh, we're a thousand members strong in Minnesota, and so Leading Age Minnesota chapter has wonderful information on that's available to anyone. Wonderful. We'll look her up and we'll put her contact in in the show notes if someone wants to track her down. Now, to get started, I feel like we're going to jump all over, Barb, because I've seen your resume and I'm fascinated in your transition 30, 40 years in acute, and then you moved over to long-term care in the last four years at Shalom. Why did you make the move? Well, I'll tell you my fun answer. My fun answer is I have two adult sons. Neither of them are married. They both live out of state. 
and there'll be no one to take care of me. So I figured I better get into post-acute care, figure it out, make sure I had all the inside scoop, fix up a place for my room. So that's the funny answer. <laughs> well, you got a reaction. Okay. And, and what, what's the, the professional answer? The professional answer is, you know, I worked in long-term care when I was a new grad as a nurse. And a friend of mine, my close friend that I swim with all the time, her father died. And he lived at a long-term care facility. This is about five years ago in January. And I went to the facility because they had a celebration of life for Warren's life. And as I was sitting there, it just kind of washed over me. The residents, the connections, the long-term relationships with the family members. And I thought to myself, wow, I really miss this. Boy, would I like to come back and do this? This was on a Tuesday. And I thought to myself, fat chance. I haven't been in post-acute care for 40 years. And on Friday, I had Hunter called me about this position. So oh, wow. I'm not Jewish, but they have a Yiddish word called Besheret, which means meant to be. So everyone here told me Besheret. <laughs> I think your professional story is as great as your cute story. And four years later, no regrets. You're still here, right? What's been yeah. your biggest challenge? Wow. <laughs> Besides the pandemic, I think partly it was the size, for one thing. Coming from acute care, I worked for large hospital systems, university systems, and there was a lot of bandwidth. And uh, this is a heavily regulated industry. Oh, my goodness. And then on top of that, throw in everything, you know, supply chain, legal, IT, infection control, everything. And I was just amazed that everybody has about three or four roles they play. And so I was not accustomed to having everyone have three or four jobs, you know, not not a lot of bench strength and not a lot of cross training. So, you know, we really have to hang together because here we are, this is what we have. So the margins are very small in post-acute care and uh, we just don't have the same luxuries. And yet very heavy on the regulation and expectations, obviously, to serve the people who come to us, the most vulnerable. What do you think, let's go back to your first week when you moved over to long-term care. Mm -hmm. What did you bring with you from your experience and knowledge in acute that really helped you out your very first week? And mm -hmm. then I'm going to follow up with what, what was the biggest learning curve for you? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think as a seasoned leader, I would say I brought all of that wisdom and leadership with me and maturity. And I think good judgment comes from experience, which comes from poor judgment. And as a seasoned leader, I lived through most of that, and I brought those scars and learnings with me. I'd also say that the other thing I brought is I my first half of my life is I, I was a paramedic first. I did ICU, CCU, helped set up a level one trauma center, did the first medical helicopter, all that kind of stuff. So I'm very calm under pressure. You're never going to see me blink. And so I think what people really want in a leader, regardless of any situation, is some confidence and calmness. And I think that even though we had lots of problems when I walked into the organization, you know, you have to kind of come across with this esprit de corps of, we got this, we can do this, we can pull this together. And so you have to kind of reignite people's passion and vision and inspiration and, um, you know, just keep moving forward and taking those small wins. So I really think it took a lot of my skill set. I also have an MBA. so. <laughs> I use my nursing skills, I use my business skills, and I think my years of experience and pulled it all together. And again, I don't have everything, but I think it helped. 
I just wrote down like seven follow-up questions and I don't know what order to go into. Okay. I think that I'm going to go on a small tangent. What about your MBA prepared you to be a CEO? And and let's dive into specifically the LTC, the LT long-term care side of things. What's the, what are, what are the margins that you're looking at? What are the cost containment issues that you run into? How do you how did you learn reimbursement? What's the data you're using? I'm I'm guessing a lot of this came from the way that you see the world from your business development and your MBA. Well, I, I would first say I think you're going to find more CEOs with a clinical and a business background in healthcare. I personally think that's the right way to go. And years ago, when we started promoting physicians into leadership positions, I actually worked at a a university here local and was kind of on a pro bono committee to kind of move them through some of the leadership skill sets and the cohort trainings that they would need. And so if you keep quality in the center of everything you do, quality of care, quality of services, quality of life, and quality of employment, then you can bring these lenses forward. And one lens is clinical and the other lens is business. In nonprofit, money is expected, but it's not everything. But you have to be able to meet payroll and keep pay the utilities and keep the lights on, right? And have some money for investment. And the same thing clinically, sometimes you have to make decisions that are not financially in the best interest, but it's the right thing to do. Or it, it focuses on the quality and it really sends a strong message. So I think you have to use that lens of both clinical and business, but leading with the quality as a centerpiece. So I would say that served me well. And when I went back to get the MBA, when I was thinking of the master's, I just did it because I knew healthcare was all messed up. So I just wanted to go and learn how other businesses operated and what could I take and apply back to healthcare to try and move it along. So that's kind of the beginning. You want me to keep going on some of those other questions? This this is fantastic. Feel free to take it any direction you want. Okay. Well, I think one of the biggest changes is reimbursement. So if you think about a lot of long-term care, people are in Medicare or Medicaid. That's the That's the government, okay? When you're working in acute care, we certainly have government payers, but not as heavy, typically, and we have more commercial, right? And the commercial, right or wrong, really offsets your self-pay and your government pay. Well, we don't have that luxury. We have some self-pay, but uh, and a little commercial is coming along with some of the Medicare Advantage and programs, et cetera. But when you're heavily dependent on the government, whoa, you know? Things can change in the blink of an eye, who's in office, where's the state budget at, so on and so forth. So it's a it's a real different reliance. And the partnerships do not come as easily because the way out of all this mess we're in is really more partnerships between payers and providers and the consumers. And the government, like it or not, is just a harder partner to work with than some of the commercial payers that are local. So that's that. Um, data. A lot of long-term care didn't even have electronic medical records. I mean, they're just coming along with that because think about it, very expensive. When I worked in acute care, there were federal dollars that really incentivized us and gave us reimbursement the more we put electronic medical records in place, right? You remember that. There's none of that in post-acute world. So, you know, how do we keep up with all that? How do we keep that all going? There's certainly some dollars at the state that helps, but it's, it's not enough. And then you take it the next step, you first have to have to have things standardized and electronic, you know, records and so on before you can even start pulling data to start using data. And so then you can say, well, where is the data analytics? Well, there was very little because there wasn't anything automated. So the basics um, were in place, I believe, around falls and wounds and, you know, decubiti and 
different things like that. But the things that we really need to pull healthcare forward are still not easily available. Total cost of care by a episode or a chief complaint or a diagnosis, data that would help you with predictive modeling. If you took an admin in from the ER, you know, knowing the acuity level or what kind of poly medications were they on, how many admits or ED visits in the last six months, how do you help predict risk and the complexity? Because care coordination or care for one person is going to be different from someone with a higher acuity. So most of that was all missing in post-acute world. And certainly it was missing for moving into more risk-based contract negotiations. You mentioned care coordination. Mm-hmm. Will you will you tease that out? What does that mean for you mm-hmm. and and what does it encompass? Well, care coordination to me means really providing the right services. And mentioned, I noticed I didn't say just clinical, the right services at the right time and the right order and the right setting for that person's needs. And I found out early on when we started working on care coordination that it didn't always take a registered nurse or licensed practical nurse. Social workers are extremely valuable. And there's even places who use trained high school graduation, graduates, I should say. A lot of it is around community resource. So do you have your right equipment? Do you have a ride to your appointment? Do you have food in your home? Do you have your medications available to you? So a lot of care coordination is making sure we coordinate all of those pieces together. And then it's around transitions of care. If I'm going from primary care to the emergency department, to home or back to transitional care or, you know, all that stuff. So everything gets lost in these handoffs. You know, we duplicate the meds, we forget the meds, people don't know, they don't follow up with their follow-up appointment, they end back in the emergency room, on and on and on. So it's really a way of connecting all of the providers also who are dependent on each other, but have disparate systems and really uh, don't do a good job of this fragmented care. So care coordination really can be the glue to keep that together and really can be the lifeline for the patient, for the resident. I love the concept of care coordination, but, and and I am an optimist. I don't know how we're going to get there. If things don't change, what are you doing at Shalom to improve coordination without mm-hmm. waiting on the rest of us, waiting on software, waiting on the government, waiting on, mm-hmm. you know, your community? What is your team doing to, to bridge those gaps? Well, we, again, the dollars are scarce, but we're very fortunate to have some strong community supporters and we can write grants for that. And I work in uh, Shalom, which is a Jewish environment where all are welcome. We have some wonderful Jewish agencies who have helped us with some dollars, knowing that healthcare has to be different, especially since the pandemic. And we're starting up a pilot around remote monitoring. So how do we keep, how do we wrap services around the customer or the consumer, wherever they are? And that could be on our campus and assisted living or independent living, could even be off campus. And how are we monitoring? And again, it could be by congestive heart failure or diabetes or pain management or something. How are we managing their pulse oximeter, you know, their O2 sats and their weight and their blood pressures and their blood glucoses and so on? And then how are we really just monitoring them by variant? And where people have a change, how do we intervene before we have to call 911 and send them to the emergency room? No one wants to do that. No one needs that expense or that bad experience. So how do we intervene sooner, quicker? It's a better experience. It's a better quality of life. And I'll tell you, it saves a lot of money. So we're just taking it upon ourselves. And so we're actually looking at vendors right now, and we're going to stand it up. 
and you know we just have to get going on doing things differently. And we were kind of poised to do some of this work before COVID, and had saved up some of our pennies, and then COVID kind of took all that away, and we're just we're kind of revisiting and restarting that work. Now we're gonna go back to the challenges. I, okay. I, I like where we went around what you brought, your background. If you can remember, what was your biggest learning curve your first week or your first month when you first started Shalom? <laughs> well, this will probably not be the, your technical question or answer. Even though I had all this experience knowing I was coming into a Jewish environment, again, we're all welcome. We don't have take care of just Jewish people. I just told people, well, here's the bad news. I'm not Jewish and I'm not related to anyone. And here's the good news. I'm not Jewish and I'm not related to anyone. So I'm pretty fearless about where I need to go to get the quality care and the quality work. But I also knew what I didn't know. And I said to my board and others, you know, the last thing I want to do is not be respectful of the people and the population that I'm serving. So you need to help me not only with religion, but the culture. So I need to understand where we can't mix meat and dairy, but somebody has to have insure for their quality of life. You know, how am I going to navigate through some of these things? And so they were very good to me. They actually, through a temple, gave me classes for nine months. I went every Tuesday night from 6 to 9 p.m., not to convert, but to be just better versed and the people I was serving and make sure that I was always respectful to them. So that's not your typical answer, but that's probably the biggest deviation. You know, a lot of the stuff I had to learn about reimbursement and, you know, elderly waiver and some of these things that were different from acute care. But that quite honestly was the biggest learning curve because even though I had done some reading and had some Jewish friends and providers, I really had never dug into the lifestyle and how that makes a difference. And so that was my biggest learning curve. I love the answer. It definitely surprised from left field. My follow-up is, I know you don't have extensive experience in long-term care since you, I guess, graduated from being a nurse or a little bit of experience. Mm -hmm. So most of, almost all of your experiences in the Jewish community, long-term care, do they approach it differently? Is there something culturally that you have learned that you really admire and appreciate and you would take it to whatever next, whatever setting Mm -hmm. or next community you move into? Right. Well, I like their values. And one thing that I I did do, I know personally, and I would say this to all leaders, wherever you go, you need to find that your personal mission and values are in alignment with the corporations. And if they aren't, it's not going to work. So I had done a little bit of research and studying, and I knew myself pretty well. And I knew if that wasn't going to work, you know, I was out. (laughs) And so the nice thing was, and I say to some of my Jewish residents, I'll say, hey, I feel more Jewish than you are today. I'm acting this value out. So my values are, are very much in alignment. And so that really has helped. They have a, a, a great holiday that really is a holiday around forgiveness. And I really like that a lot because I think so much of the world, you know, psychosocial is a big aspect to everyone's life, especially to your health. And if we can all learn to forgive and move on a bit, that, that's very interesting to me. And I also think that one of their values is really honoring their fathers and mothers. And I think that our ageism is alive and well in the U.S. I mean, we're doing everything we can to look young, to stay young, to, you know, not tell people our age, to avoid becoming invisible. And I always say, you know what, my seniors used to be Google. And now you all are discarding everybody. 
it's, it's quite maddening. And so I love the Jewish values of caring, repairing the world is another one of their values and honoring their mothers and fathers and taking care of them. And I think um, we could all follow suit. That's a great reply. I would like to move around or move back, I guess, a little bit into the leadership. I know Mm -hmm. when we had a chat beforehand, you said that what you had learned from COVID had to do with a new form of leadership. I think the word you used was adaptive Mm -hmm. uh, versus technical. Can you elaborate on that and what that means to you? Sure. So if you've ever read any of Heifetz, he's really the, the author around adaptive and technical learning. So what happens to most of us and how our brains work is a problem comes before you and you immediately kind of start scanning and go, well, I've seen this before, or I have a pattern, or I know what to do, and here's how you do it, right? And when an adaptive problem comes before you, we keep usually trying to throw technical fixes at it, and it doesn't work, and it never goes away. So that's really kind of your number one thing. If, if you, and a leader, I think, who is less experienced doesn't recognize when this is no longer a technical problem, and you have to kind of give up what you knew. And I would, I would offer it to you that the pandemic became an adaptive problem for all of us. There's components of it we knew, but this was a whole new playbook. And you had to just accept that. You had to kind of embrace the uncertainty of that. You had to be resilient and nimble and move forward as quickly as possible. And really using the frontline workers, that's a lot around adaptive working too, is to say, what do we think here? What's our best thinking around this versus a lot of technical problems go, well, I'm, I'm the oldest and I'm senior and I've seen this 10 times and here's what you do. We don't know usually in adaptive. And he also talks about getting up on the balcony. I use that a lot. You got to get up in the balcony and kind of look at things. Then you got to get down on the dance floor and roll up your sleeves and do it. And you got to get back up in the balcony and go, hmm, okay, this isn't working. Or we got to think about this differently, get curious about it and then get back down to do it. So I think adaptive leadership We've all gone through this in some way or fashion, but we have lived it in spades and uh, long-term care. When you run into a problem and you've thrown all your technical knowledge at it and you realize it's not working and you need to take a step back, can you give me a specific example where you've had to be adaptive? Who do you turn to? Mm-hmm. How do you react You know, viscerally and, and mentally? How, how do you do it? And give me a specific example, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. Well, I'll go back to the, to the pandemic. It was March 10th a year ago when I said, this is a real deal. I've lived through the coronavirus, through avian flu, through SARS, through MERS, and I knew this was different. Asymptomatic shedding just threw everybody for a loop, right? And it was deadly, but not too deadly. So it killed people, but it didn't kill everybody off. And so we kept spreading and spreading, and we didn't know who was spreading. And we had no tools, and no one was there to help us. So... I called my team together, a few of my senior leaders, and I said, this is it. And a few of them said, oh, Barb, this is going to go away in a month. I'm like, no, this is it. (laughs) And I said, all right, starting tomorrow, we're going to stand up a command center. And they're like, what? I said, starting tomorrow, command center, get in the phone, get people on. We need all our best thinkers because we have our work cut out for us. So that's an example of adaptive leading. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have all the questions. I didn't have all the answers. But I knew collectively we could do it. And I knew we had to come together and figure it out. So does that help? That, that's a fantastic example. Can we back it up two days beforehand? March 8th, 
what were you trying to do March 9th? What were you trying to do? And can you remember when you started to realize, I can't do this alone with the traditional, yeah. with all of your methodologies and all of right. your tools you had before? Well, and it wasn't so much, I think I knew in a blink, I couldn't do it alone. I knew the magnitude of what this could scale up to. I think what took convincing for me is, was this the real deal? You know, I mean, we had a president of the United States, let's be honest, who was saying, oh, this will go away. Don't worry. Right. We didn't really have any strong leaders standing up there, you know, going, we got to get going. And so it really, unfortunately, I think a lot of lives were lost because of that. But we were on our own trying to work through our own algorithms of, hmm, is this the real deal? Is this going to go away? Is this, do I need to take this more seriously? You know, and if you, if you talk about preserving life at, at all costs, which is probably my number one role here at CEO for the people who live here and the people who work here, it was more of a, I had to convince myself because I, you don't want to ring the alarm and push the bell too often, but I had to really say to myself, okay, is this it? Are you going to really ring the bell on this and you're going to really get everybody going? And so that took more of the time to convince me with the little science and the judgment and the experience I had to ring the bell. So that's what I needed more than I couldn't do this alone. I knew immediately this was going to be so huge that there's no way I could do it alone. Now, I could uh, I could put in my expertise of command center and incident, you know, debriefing. And, you know, I did all this emergency medicine you know, stuff for years. I could bring that to the table. I did not have all the answers. I like the ring the bell example. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. So correct me and take me down your mental process. But I can imagine myself being afraid of ringing the bell and being wrong and being embarrassed. What was going through your mind when you had to convince yourself, this is real, this is legit. I'm going to ring the bell. And even if I am wrong, mm -hmm. it's worth it. Yeah, well... You don't have the advantage I do. I came from emergency medicine. When you hear hoof beats, you never think horses, you think zebras. I don't know what that means. It means you think something different, something worse. So okay. I don't think just the average stuff. You always think, so no one ever wanted to be my kids. I have two boys and they go, well, I want to go do this. I'm like, well, here's what I saw once and here's what could happen. So I'm always, here's the worst case scenario. And then you work backwards, right? When you go to the ER and you bonk your head and they do a CAT scan and observe you and on and on and on, they're working from the worst scenario backwards, correct? And they're ruling everything out. They don't go in and say, oh, we think you're fine. Go home and call us if something, you know, I mean, they do, but usually they work in the house. That's kind of what this algorithm was about. You got to go for the worst scenario and then you have to work yourself backwards. And if I was wrong, I was wrong. I mean, you got to take risk as a CEO. But again, if my number one job was to preserve life, then I had to go for the worst scenario. And the worst scenario was this thing was going to grab hold. We weren't going to be able to, you know, corral it. And we had better get going as fast as we can to figure out what we can do. So I didn't have any hesitancy about I could be wrong. I'm like, I could be wrong. I mean, that's part of being leadership. But I could, I would have been more wrong not to take the risk. You know, there's a choice by not choosing. And that wasn't the right path. Going through your, your resume, I see that you worked in... Is it the Center of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Minnesota? I think you're the first person I've interviewed with that experience. What did you learn from that, and both personally and professionally? Well, first of all, I love animals, so it was a gift to be able to work there and bring some of my skills there and hopefully add some value. I always knew there was value in the animal-human bond, but I really learned more about that. 
And I also think that that's still true today. I mean, look at the healthcare industry. Holy mackerel. The world is flat. Families are spread out. Animals become surrogate family members. But animals help. I mean, they reduce blood pressure, stress. I'll tell you, if you want to lose weight, get a big dog. The big dog doesn't care if it's 20 below. They're like, get your jacket on. We're going for a walk every day. They make you exercise. People who are isolated, it gives them someone to talk to, maybe someone to make breakfast for. You know, they aren't supposed to feed them people food, but they do. Someone to love up and touch and hold, especially if they've been living alone for a long time. Animals play a big part in people's life. And so that was really an enjoyment to see that. And actually, it was interesting. I When I got there, there were a lot of complaints by the customers. And I was I was kind of looking at the trends and what they were. And then I thought, oh, I know what this is. It's grief. So animals, it's hard. And it's hard for some people. They have complex relationships. It was my mother's dog. This dog saved my life. I was a police sergeant. Here's my canine, but I, I have to be tough. And I actually looked across the street. There was a school, a social worker, and we brought over an intern social worker to help people with end-of-life decisions and grief and loss. And at first, staff was not too happy with me. And then at the end, they said, never take these people away. This is so helpful. So anyway, I learned a lot about end-of-life. We can talk about that. And I learned a lot about the animal-human bond. And there's also a component of safety, kind of farm-to-table safety. Anthrax is in the soil. I mean. You want to talk about a leading indicator for any terroristic, you know, something happening to our food chain or something. Veterinarians, very smart people. When you say end of life, it throws me for a loop because it surprises me that you learned about it at a veterinary before getting into long-term care. What, what did you learn and, and how do you apply that to your work with humans? Well, I think that people are more comfortable talking about end of life about their pets than they are about their own lives or each other. And veterinarians, because small animals, not equine or large animals, but small animals only live 10, 11 years. So people have to have that conversation a lot more often in their life than they do about mom or dad or grandma. And when they come in, with the exception of euthanasia, it's the same questions. What is Fluffy's quality of life? You'll know when Fluffy can't get the frisbee or get up and go outside to relieve themselves or whatever that is. And it's and, and if you love that pet, it's the same loss and it's the same compassion of care to help that animal ease out of life without, you know, I always say, whose needs are getting met? Are you keeping this pet alive for yourself or is it time to let go? And with humans, I will tell you, we do a very poor job of it. Even physicians don't want to talk about it because if you think about it, Western medicine is all about saving lives. I mean, how do we prolong your life as long as possible? How do we do all these new things and technologies to extend your life? I mean, that's that's a save. That's a win. And we don't talk so much about good deaths or end of life. That's more of a failure, right? And then I mentioned to you before, Peter, we have done ourselves a big disservice by chopping up care coordination to palliative care to hospice. The minute you say to someone, oh, I think you should think about hospice for your mother, and I've done this as a nurse, as a neighbor, as a friend, people say, oh, no, I don't want my mom to think I've given up on her. Or I don't want my sister from, my brother from California to be mad at me because I put mom in hospice. And so as soon as we, we say that, people don't use those services. And because we don't talk about it and people don't say their wishes, 
once the train gets going and we start doing pairs to you or resuscitation, it's hard for us to stop. So you need to be strong on the front end to say, what are your wishes? What is your quality of life? What do you want? You want us to bring you in and resuscitate you and put you in the ICU and, you know, all these other things. Or if you're terminal, do you want to die at home with music and your friends and, you know, have a goodbye party? So I would just say the animal world does death a lot better than the human world from my experience. And I think the veterinarians have a, a lot to teach us. And I've actually been talking to a few of them over the years to say, when you talk about end of life, would you just pivot and say to the owners, and by the way, who would make your decisions for you if you no longer could? Could you look at the Honoring Choices website? And, you know, that would be a gift to your family. Maybe you want to have that conversation. The other thing I'll tell you that you can do with animals, and I did this with my own son when he was about 18 or 19. He had his beloved cat, Tucker. And Tucker had a good long life and Tucker was dying. And when we went in and we talked about his quality of life and had to put Tucker down, I then pivoted to my son and I said, you've heard my wishes before about my end of life. I've been very clear with my children. But I said to him, I don't know about yours. So it was a really good time for me to say, what is your quality of life? And how would you like your end of life to be? So I think there's a lot to be learned from animals um, and humans. I love how in five minutes you were able to explain that. And I'm certain that there's a lot of people listening who can be like, oh, that like a light bulb's going off inside of our head. I'm glad you brought up your kids because as this conversation's gone along, I've started to think about kind of your, I can tell that you're strategic and you're visionary. I'm interested in what you look at so that you make sure you don't get stuck in the weeds. What are your KPIs? I'm going to, Hopefully, I'm going to surprise you with this question Okay. because you're kind of a CEO of your family. So I'm sure you have a KPI dashboard of your kids. <laughs> You've been a CEO. So you have KPIs at, vet, at a vet school, also in acute and also in post-acute. What were your KPIs when you showed up day one and how have you transformed them to make more sense of the, where you want to take Shalom? Hmm. Okay. That, those are good. That's a good question. Well, I had my little 90, 100 day plan, you know, so this might surprise you too, but I think the world really moves around relationships. Without relationships, there's really nothing. I also think that in healthcare, there's a finite resources. And unless we really optimize and not duplicate, again, it's shame on us. And again, we're going to bankrupt the nation. So I, not being Jewish, one of the things for sure that I had to do was to get out into our community and find out what other Jewish agencies, I knew a lot about other healthcare agencies, but what services were they offering? And did they know about the services we were offering? And what could we do together to optimize, to educate each other, not duplicate and move forward? And that, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you have to meet people understand them. They have to understand you. You have to come together often. Then you have to bring more people together and so on and so forth. So that's perhaps you say a softer skill, but that was true. I'd also say the same thing of your own staff. You know, people don't know you. We'll talk about trust in a second and even the pandemic, what we did around transparency, but you really have to establish relationships with people. It's, it's not just what do I need you to do and we're going to start cracking on this, that, and the other thing. But people need to understand you, and I understand. I need to understand things they've abandoned, things that they've seen come and go that they think, you know, 
we should we shouldn't have let go or things they see. So I think at the beginning, I spent a lot of time really just building relationships and trust. And that's carried me through even through the pandemic. Very early on, I made the decision that we would put on our website and create a hotline and put on the number of people who are positive with COVID and the number of people who have died. And it was kind of a big gulp to do that, quite honestly. And I thought it's the right thing to do. Wouldn't you want to know if you worked here or if you lived here or if you had a family member here, if you wanted to take your mother out or, you know, bring them home, if you wanted to be admitted here, if you wanted to work here. And and only through trust and relationships can you really get the partnership you need to move forward. For the pandemic was cooperation around pandemic. For the other goals that I had at the beginning, it really was a transparency and a trust where people believe that you cared about them and they cared about you. And we really cared about the mission together. And then you could move forward. So that takes a lot of legwork. And I, I can't underestimate how important that is. But it takes a lot to kind of get that all going. And then you really have to put some discipline into the system around some pillars. And there's always finance and quality and people, you know, the usual service and things. And then you have to have, let people help you find out where the bar is and where are you going to go with that and how are we going to get there? And, you know, and then build that esprit de corps. And then I started bringing leaders together. They hadn't had really a lot of leadership meetings. And how did we cross fertilize? Again, not one person has all the answers. The other thing, I know I'll get on tangents too, but the other thing no, is a leader. Is I think it's very important that you raise your, I always tell people two things. First of all, I say, I'm firing you all from your second job. And they all look at me like, she's a little nuts. And I say to them, your second job is having to know everything. There's no way you're ever going to know everything. And then the most important thing I can do is raise my hand at a meeting or something and say, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or could you please explain that again? Or I didn't really get that. Can someone else help understand that, you know, clarify that for me? So once you've done that, you've now allowed and given people permission that one they can lean on each other, but they don't have to be perfect and pretend and spend all that energy that they know each other. And I learned that lesson in the emergency room because the scariest resident you ever have walking through rotation in the emergency room is the one who will never ask for help. And I'll tell you, a seasoned nurse can almost kick them out because that's the one who's going to go off and get into trouble and hurt somebody. So I learned that that way, but that was a skill that transferred to leadership. So I don't know, I've kind of gone, I didn't really get to your traditional, you know, key performance indicators, and I have them, and we did all that stuff. And then I brought in strategic planning, and, you know, and we have metrics for the board and all those kinds of things. But I think you got to start with some of the softer skills, and then you got to start about the culture. And the culture really does start at the top. There's a lot of pressure on you to make sure, you know, you begin as you intend to go on. And what behaviors, uh, culture to me is just what are behaviors are accepted and repeated. And we continue to work on that and struggle with that, quite honestly. But that's also important work to say. Culture, you know, eat strategy, you know, what do they say for breakfast every day? But how do you get that going too? So you really have to set some of the foundation for that. And then you also have to give permission to people to do the right thing, knowing qualities at the centerpiece for everything. And then you have to reward people when they do the right thing. And let them make some of those decisions. It is not okay for the CEO to come in on the white horse and make the big decision about something and everyone goes, yay. You've got to give the work back to people and give them permission to do the right thing. Okay, did I take you too far off, Peter? 
No, I, I liked the, you surprised me with the culture reply to KPIs. My follow-up with that would be, how do you gauge it? And do you just do it from, you know, an observational point of view, kind of checking the temperature on your staff and how everyone feels? Or do you actually have something that you too try to track? And it's maybe it's as simple as just surveying your staff once a month saying, what's your biggest concern? What are you most worried about? And you're checking people's confidence level. Is there anything that ever gets written down? Or are you okay with the intangible? No, I mean, I, you know, I, I'll just go back to the KPIs. I mean, we have days cash on hand and service debt ratio and quality indicators. I mean, we have all that, but this stuff is important. And I'll tell you something I'm working on now that's even more important to tie this all together. I think that engagement surveys are important and you can do them continuously or quarterly or once a year or so on. But we, I've asked our team, our HR team to start something separate, different. So everyone has to come in through a screening every day for every shift, get your temp and your, you have any, you know, symptoms around COVID, all that kind of stuff. And we have three questions we ask people, like, do you have the tools to do your job? You know, you're getting the right communication and what kind of, what are your unmet needs? And so we just start these three, three simple questions. We do that quarterly now and take a look at those. We're trying to get people, you know, more in real time about that. The other thing that I do as a CEO every Wednesday, I'll tell you, I temp and screen myself from 5.30 to 8.30 in the morning. And I talk to the people. So it's not just going to a meeting or, you know, giving a presentation, which you know, we do almost everything by Zoom. But I actually, I really enjoy that. And I really find out what's going on. And people always give it to me, you know, don't give me the berries. So, you know, it's a good way of really keeping your finger in the pulse. So I don't like getting up at 4 a.m., but I like hearing the, the what's going on. That's that. That's great. I think that we've covered all of the the topics that I knew that I wanted to to explore with you. Is there anything, is there any question I haven't asked you or a topic that you're passionate about that we haven't dug into that you'd like to share? It seemed to me there was one question on here somewhere along the line was kind of like, you know, 20 years ago, what would you tell yourself or something like that? Yeah, I wrap up with those. Are you ready? Well, let me just look through the other things if there's anything else that I wanted to share. And I thank you for giving me this uh, platform. Sure. I, I do think that, you know, someone has helped us get to where we're at. And I think people should just make sure you're mentoring and helping anyone that comes to your door. I think that's the only way we're going to keep advancing leadership and passing, you know, this skill and this art and this craft on. So please pay it, pay it forward. There's just one thing. This isn't really a platform, but one thing I'm, as I'm trying to pull people over to long-term care, which is really my ultimate goal here, long-term care is very collaborative. Acute care is very competitive. I call it kind of co-optition. There's certainly some, some competition, but I'll tell you, it is a gentler industry. And I'll just tell you, I was surprised by that. And I thought, wow, what a great capstone career for me to be amongst all these lovely people who aren't trying to beat me up and stab me in the back. And I'm not saying that always happens, but I work with surgeons, emergency medicines for years, and they're a little more competitive. So this has been a very nice kind of step off to go, wow, a little gentler world. So come over. It's, it's very good. Well, the other thing I want to say is, you know, Seniors really have need purpose and meaning to the rest of their life. People just don't come here to die. They should be coming to thrive. And so how do we keep connecting them with high school students, with people who need help building resumes or interviews? These are people who live in long-term care were business owners and people who worked in HR and nurses and all kinds of people with talent. And they have nothing to do 
or little to do. I mean, there's activities and so on, but their brain. And then I think about the great void out in the community and I go, wow, how do we connect this community need with a lot of these people who have so much to give? Again, they used to be Google. And so people should use them. And I've been working with the high school advantage program, bringing more high school students in. We had someone who, he, he unfortunately passed away last year, but he is a Holocaust survivor. And his biggest wish to us was that he wanted to capture his story for his legacy. And these students came in and made a video of it. Can you imagine how powerful that was for them? Yeah, beautiful. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's what we need to do. We need to connect more people in need with our seniors. They have a lot to offer, and we have just pushed them to the side. It, it pains me greatly. I also think that people have sometimes a, oh, you're in long-term care, you know? I'm like, no, we're in long-term care. There's always something happening here. It's fun. I've, I've been married for 38 years. I still have a 99-year-old boyfriend here. I mean, I love it. I had three boyfriends. I lost two, but I still have one. <laughs> I say to my husband, you better be on your best behavior because I still got one in the wings there. But, you know, you get to be with them, and, and they have such history in that you can learn from them. And it, it is great fun. So I just really think we need to stop discarding our seniors and and take advantage of what they have to offer. I also think the other dream I have, and I kind of started on this path, and then, you know, things kind of dried up. But you think of a lot of the research we did to advance medicine was really for people like maybe 70 years and younger. Well, I have a wall where we did a calendar where everyone who lived over the age of 100, we took their professional picture and put them in a calendar. People are living longer. And they have a lot of time, and they want to help the communities, and they want to advance medicine. So we really should be thinking of them for more research partners. And it could be medical devices. I'm not just talking about pharmaceuticals. I'm talking about other things. How do we help our seniors help us? You know, again, what's that, what's that collaborative relationship where seniors should be more tapped into for research? And again, I'm not talking about abusing them. I'm talking about where they have interest and where they can help out and advance, advance medicine or advance a medical device or advance their own lifestyle. So those are just a couple of things that I think that I did touch on, but I think we have to pay attention to. I'm, I'm certain that I can say this for many of the listeners today, but it's been really inspirational to listen to you. Mm. Really, Minnesota is lucky to have you. Shalom oh, is lucky you. to have you. I really feel like the podcast, uh, you've really been a blessing and man, you've, you've changed my week. I'm happy to have wrapped up the oh, week this way. Thank you. Thank I'm going to surprise you because and change my last question. Okay. My right. last question, I normally ask, what advice would you give your younger self with what you know today? But mine's specifically going to be, what would you give your younger self? What, what advice would you give your younger self going into acute care now knowing what you know after working in both sides of care? That's a, that's a hard question. I, I think the thing that I was more oblivious to working in acute care is a fragmentation of care. And I think coming to post-acute care really opened my eyes to how connected we really are and how much we really have ignored each other. And I think I would have paid more attention to handoffs, relationships, partnerships, opportunities, if I had the knowledge I did now back then. But then, you know, I was just looking what was in front of me and I didn't have good peripheral vision around the continuum of care. And this, you know, I've done pre-hospital, you're a medic, and now I'm 
back in senior care, I've really gotten to see the, the range and the importance of healthcare all along the continuum. And anytime there's a break in that, you know, we, we see the, the carnage from that and, and the expense. And so I just had no, no, I, I, even though I worked as a new grad in long-term care for a little bit, I didn't put it, the pieces together. Well, thanks for sharing that because I know that there's some 20 year old out there that's hearing that and they're like, oh, I'm not going to I'm not going to wait 30 years to uh, apply that and, and, you know, start to make changes, make changes early. And lastly, Barb, I know that there are going to be listeners who are going to want to reach out to you and follow you and see what you're doing with with your vision. Where can we find you online? Well, two things I would say LinkedIn and uh, it's Barb Click with the K, K L I C K. And then look at our Shalom website. I think there's a lot of good news and blogs and a lot of good work being done here. And as we progress, again, this is the nice thing about post-acute care. We're all happy to share. How do we how do we lift all the boats and, and improve care and quality of life for all the people we're serving? And so I would say pay attention to both those and look me up. We're happy to share and, and partner. And we're only on this earth for a short time, so let's make the best of it. Thank you so much, Barb, for joining us. And yeah. I look forward to following your work and your career. And thanks for all mm-hmm. your inspiration. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Thanks for your time today. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.